But we continue to work through the most famous message Jesus ever preached, often called the Sermon on the Mount. Previously, we looked at what Jesus said about God's law and discussed the fact that we cannot obey it well enough to punch our ticket to heaven. As Jesus put it in the last verse we covered, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Even the best of the best could not make themselves good enough for God. And the next several statements from Jesus are intended to be cases in point, supporting the fact that nobody makes it into heaven through obedience. And so following his statement about fulfilling the law, yet not abolishing it, and starting in verse 21, Jesus proceeds to take six of the most foundational Old Testament laws and to explain that God's intention with these laws has always been much deeper and further reaching than anyone, even including the Pharisees, had understood. Today we'll look at the first of those six laws, which happens to be the sixth of the Ten Commandments. But I want to make sure you have the big picture, which is part of why I preach through books or large sections of Scripture. From the context, it is apparent that Jesus wants to do two things at this point in his sermon. First, he wants to show the people that they cannot keep God's law well enough to enter heaven. But second, he wants to instruct his disciples, that's us, and how to follow him toward a better way of life which in the even larger context of his sermon is a life focused on bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth. In other words, while Jesus wants to show us that obedience to the law cannot save us, he also wants to give us a deeper understanding of the true heart of God's law so that once we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, we can find guidance from God's law in order to actually live as his representatives on earth. It's interesting that Jesus starts this section where he covers six of the Old Covenant commandments with the very one that most or all of us in this room think we obey. I don't know about you, but I have never murdered anyone. Or have I? Let's see what Jesus says. Starting in verse 21, the Son of God continues, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now, fellow students of the Bible, let me offer a warning. In passages like this, sometimes we can get a little bit silly by trying to dissect it into a million pieces. He is not trying to make 12 points in this paragraph, but rather one point, or at most two. And it's also important to note that Jesus was very fond of using hyperbole, you know, exaggerated language. It's not to water down what Jesus said, but inasmuch as I don't really mean it when I say my wife is going to kill me, you know, for, for this or that, 
Uh, I can also say that simply calling someone a fool will not send you straight to hell. Growing up in church, I had heard this passage many times, and I remember being afraid to ever use the word fool for any reason, but that was not really the intention of Jesus here. In the book of Proverbs, for instance, constantly refers to certain people as fools. We'll talk more about what this means later. But understand that Jesus does not intend here to give us a hyper-specific addendum to the law prohibiting murder. So what does he intend? What is the irreducible minimum of what Jesus intends to get across in these words? He's saying that not a single person on earth has ever come close to keeping the sixth commandment. And keep in mind, that commandment simply says, thou shalt not murder. But Jesus says, you've all broken it. Because with God, hatred is murder. This was radical. Jesus is also saying that our fellowship with God is dependent somehow on our fellowship with other people. These were his points, pure and simple. Now before we go on, let's talk for a minute about the Ten Commandments. What is so special about them? Why should we take note of the fact that today we're learning more about the sixth of those Ten Commandments rather than just saying, well, hey, this is one of hundreds of laws from the Old Testament. Think about this. The Ten Commandments were actually chiseled in stone by the finger of God. Unlike the rest of the Bible, which is written by prophets, apostles, and those inspired by God to write down His revelation to mankind, the Ten Commandments were actually engraved onto stone by the hand of God. This happened on Mount Sinai in the presence of Moses, who then brought them down to the people. The Bible tells us that these words were miraculously burned into stone tablets by the hand of God. I'll say that fact alone makes the Big Ten pretty special. And yet in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly demonstrates that even the Ten Commandments are really only a starting point. In short, the Ten Commandments are what God could fit onto stone tablets. (laughs) But the heart behind them goes much deeper. And if you think about it, the Ten Commandments by themselves are not much more than a basic standard for humane living. It's as if God says, hey guys, it'd be really great if you could stop killing each other. And since I'm the only real God, if you could stop bowing down to idols and statues, that'd be good. And while you read it, please don't take someone else's stuff. And don't have sex with somebody else's wife or husband. It's all so basic. And yet, for the most part, people throughout the ages have not been able to keep these most rudimentary rules. That's just how sinful we are. And even if a few really dedicated people like the Pharisees had been able to obey a minimalistic understanding of the Big Ten, Jesus explains that in doing so, they would not have come close to achieving the righteousness required to please God, that which is necessary for admittance into His heavenly kingdom. Jesus makes it clear, for instance, that God had always expected His people to draw the line way short of murder. If you do not commit murder, you have obeyed that part of God's minimum standard for humane living. You've obeyed the letter of that law, but you have not necessarily obeyed the heart and full intent God has in it because God's standard goes far beyond humane living. God expects His people to be like Him. He wants us to be Christ-like, not just humane. He wants us to accurately bear His image and to bring His kingdom down to earth by how we live. 
We're talking about the difference between obeying the letter of God's law and obeying the spirit of it. This is a New Testament idiom made clear in places like Romans 2, Romans 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We are called to obey the spirit of the law, not just the letter. This is why we must learn from Jesus about God's deeper intent behind these laws. When it comes to the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, I think back to when my son Connor was still living at home. Specifically, I think of a command that he would sometimes receive from his mother. Are you rolling your eyes? <laughs> the command was to clean his room. Connor just did not see the point. He definitely did not understand the spirit of the law. Now, Connor was an obedient son, so he would never have simply ignored his mother or flat out disobeyed her. When mom asked later if he had cleaned his room, he would never have lied about it. He would say, yes, I cleaned my room. And in his heart, he believed that he had done so. <laughs> However, when mom would take a look at the room that he said he had cleaned, she would not see a clean room by any reasonable standard. Rather, she would find herself in want of a hazmat suit. <laughs> the room Connor felt that he had cleaned looked to her like some kind of science experiment gone wrong. In fact, the room Connor thought he cleaned still smells like some kind of science experiment gone wrong. What happened? Connor thought he had obeyed his mom well enough because he'd obeyed the letter of the law. By his own standard, he had cleaned the room. After all, it looked better now than it did before. Some of the things that had been on the floor had been at least partially stuck under the bed or partially stuffed into the closet. There were less mutants growing in the corner than, than before, most importantly, the end result of what mom had wanted out of the situation had not happened. What she was looking for, and had every right to expect, had not been achieved. His room may have been cleaned by his standard, but by her standard, it was still an absolute mess. And friends, when it comes to the house, mom's standard is the only one that matters. One of the biggest differences between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law boils down to what is going on in your heart. Jesus talked about that a lot. To hate another person may not carry the same earthly consequences as murder, but Jesus explains that it violates God's law no less. The Bible says to break God's law at any point makes you a lawbreaker because failing to live up to God's standard at any point simply means you fail to live up to a standard. To break God's law or fail to live up to his standard is also known as sin. In other words, we sin a lot. Sometimes in the letter and much more often in the spirit. This is why we're so desperate for a savior. It's the reason each of us is guilty enough, as Jesus put it, to go into the fiery hell. Thankfully, in receiving God's grace through faith in Christ, we will not get what we deserve. But now let's talk about the other reason Jesus is getting deep into the spirit of these laws. Why does Jesus expand our understanding of the sixth commandment about murder to include issues of the heart, such as anger or hatred? He does so in order to teach us how to live as his disciples. He wants to teach his disciples, his followers, how to follow him. As mentioned, this is the secondary purpose of what Jesus is preaching, to teach us how to live as his disciples. Do you remember the Great Commission? Matthew records it in chapter 28 of his gospel, basically the final words of Jesus before ascending into heaven. There are three actions in the Great Commission. Making disciples which speaks to leading people to the point of salvation, 
baptizing them, which is their profession of faith in Christ. But then also it says, teaching them to obey the commandments of Christ. It's this third directive for which we need passages like the one we're studying today. To teach people to obey the commands of Christ. The commands of Christ are simply expositions of the previously stated commands of God. Jesus came to tell us more about what God meant in his law. Because of teaching from Jesus, such as the Sermon on the Mount, we have a much better understanding of what God expects, for instance, in the area of how we treat other people when they make us angry. Followers of Jesus are expected to do more than refrain from murder. Yes? And how rel relevant are these instructions? Even as COVID begins to fade, people are still loaded for bear, and I'm no exception. I think I may have experienced anger bordering on hatred even this last week. And I ask God to forgive me, because as both Yoda and Darth Sidious knew, if you give in to your hate, the journey to the dark side will be... Anyone? Thank you. Complete. By the way, there are Christian themes in every story, in every movie, because the truth can never be fully suppressed, even by those who try. Why can't we all just get along? Why do we tend toward hate? I know, my friends, we definitely tend toward hate. Why? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves when we think less of others. If they're bad enough in our minds, maybe by contrast, we can seem good. The media is well aware of this and makes millions feeding your hatred of people. You do know this, right? Listen, the media successfully led at least half of the country to hate President Bush. Remember? Are you old enough? And I'm sorry, but that dude's a really nice guy. I think he is. I mean, media had made half the country hate President Obama. Some of you still hate him. Obviously, don't even get me started on the last guy. <laughs> but you know, if only it could be just one guy to hate, that'd be a little better. But much worse, they've made us hate each other. In fact, if you and I don't hate one of our leaders enough, those who do hate them are encouraged to start hating us. What, you don't hate Obama? Well, then maybe I'll start hating you. What, you don't hate Trump? Well, then, we'll just hate you right along with him. Listen, it makes absolutely no difference who, which party is in power. The media whether mainstream on one side or less mainstream on the other side, has turned us all into angry haters of each other. And they're making billions doing it. Remember this, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Waves. One of his greatest tools is hate. People are radicalized through hate. And Islamic terrorists don't own the patent on this method. We can all be radicalized through hate. 
What did Jesus say? The translation I use today doesn't use the word hate, but that's really the kind of anger Jesus is talking about, hateful anger. And he's basically saying that to hate someone is to murder that person in your heart. Actually, according to the Apostle John, Jesus said exactly that. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So who is worse? Who is worse? A person who has an incorrect view on a current issue or you for hating them. By the way, it changes nothing to say, well, I don't hate them. If, in fact, in your heart, really, actually, you kind of do hate them. We're not talking about whether or not you would use the word hatred, but whether or not hatred actually describes the posture of your heart. I think it's probably true that some of you hate liberals. Maybe you say, yeah, but they aren't my Christian brother or sister, so it's okay. Aha, you think you found a loophole. Jesus said we aren't to hate our brothers. So as long as they aren't our brothers and sisters, we good. I don't think so. First of all, if I had time, I could show you in Scripture that we're not to hate anyone. But even if you were right in your hair splitting on that, let me just tell you something. There are liberals. There are people who hold your most hated views who have truly put their faith in Christ. And maybe you think their worldview doesn't line up with Scripture. But regardless, if that person has put his or her trust in Christ, he or she is your brother and sister. And you will see them in heaven. We're not saved by holding certain views or being right. I know some of these folks. And let me be clear that I adamantly and passionately disagree with some of them on some things. But based on their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, as far as I know, we are still brothers and sisters, and I will choose love, no matter what they say on social media or elsewhere. I choose love. And as a part of following Jesus, I fight against my natural, sinful tendency toward hate. Well, pastor, the real problem is they hate me. Yeah, that really stinks, doesn't it? It does. It hurts to be hated. Jesus knew that. But one of these days, we're going to have to stop excusing our own behavior by pointing to someone else's. That's kind of been going on since Adam and Eve. If we really want to follow Jesus, we're not going to do that. Let me get practical. Based on these words of Christ, I suggest you be very careful about how far you let your emotions go toward those with whom you disagree, even about major issues. Should I get specific? See, that's when I get in trouble. But it's also when my words start making a difference. Is it okay to hate someone who supports abortion? Did you know that in Rome, infanticide was legal? People could leave their babies out to die. Yeah, it's sick. But did Jesus call his disciples to hate the Romans for this? 
Like most of you, I have very strong feelings about abortion. I won't shy away from calling it what it is, the murder of a completely innocent life. It can be tough to love someone who thinks that's okay. It can be tough to find a way to love those who support it. Their view is impossible for me to understand. Abortion is probably the most important issue in my mind in terms of how we vote. But regardless of the challenge, we need to learn to love people who are wrong. And we need to hope they come to the light. You cannot control others in what they do, but you are responsible for yourself. And when it comes to yourself, there's no issue more important than making sure that you do not hate others. Why? Because if you have hatred in your heart, you are a murderer. And so I suggest you get this straight. Learn to love the other side. Try to understand at least what got them to believe the lie they believe. Find a way to be compassionate. Blame Satan. I don't know. Blame their upbringing. Blame the church for not being more powerful or impactful in the culture that brainwashed them. I don't know, but do whatever you have to do to fight your hatred for the other side. Doesn't mean you agree or say it's okay. I didn't say it's okay, did I? You've got to fight your hatred because to God we're all the other side. To God we're all the other side. And He still loved us enough to die for us. Jesus says those who understand that have eternal life abiding in them. 1 John three fifteen. By the way, you don't get to decide who is saved or unsaved. You don't get to say, well, if they have that view, they must not be saved. Who do you think you are? Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump all professed faith in Jesus Christ. I know you don't want to hear it. The fact is that every one of them claims Christ as personal Lord and Savior. I've heard it from their own mouths. Who am I to say any one of them does not really know Jesus? Who am I to say? God forbid that I would make such a judgment. No, the Lord Jesus Christ will sort that out in the end. Not you, not me, not now. So listen, for your own sake, if someone professes faith in Christ, which would make them your brother or sister, then I would make double sure you do not hate them based on the texts we've read today from Jesus. As I said, I think we can make a case against all hatred, but in our text today, it's true that Jesus was talking about how we relate to our spiritual family, those who belong to Jesus. Did you see that in our text? It's all throughout. Apparently, it's even worse to hold hateful anger against those who are part of the family of God in Christ. To hate someone with whom we worship. Be reconciled with your brother, Jesus says, a reference to other men and women who, by faith, are part of the family of God. Jesus wanted us to start at ground zero, which is his family. He knew that if people who share the Holy Spirit of God could not get along with each other, there would be no hope for bringing his kingdom to the rest of the world. We must get it right here, folks. And listen, we will have conflicts, but we must resolve them in a godly way. And above all, we cannot let unresolved conflict turn into bitterness and unbridled anger or hatred, not if we have eternal life in us, not if we are truly saved by the blood of Jesus. So are things any different here? 
Or are we like any worldly organization of people, riddled with unresolved conflict, bickering, complaining, backbiting, gossip, uninformed criticism, vying for position and control, wanting to look better than others, getting along with some, but not with those who are more difficult? Failing to give the benefit of the doubt. Oh, man, wouldn't that be awesome? Finding fault easily. Oblivious to the fact that we're building up hatred in our hearts. Are we any different than the rest of the world? Jesus makes it crystal clear we had better be. Let's break it down a little bit. Looking at verse 22. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. Does that sound harsh or what? It's not that Jesus' people want to know about, is it? What if I said to you this morning, hey, just wanted to mention that uh, if you currently hate another person, especially a fellow believer, you are on your way to hell. Uh, would that wake anybody up? Right, well, remember, the overarching point here is that without grace, we'd all be going to hell. Okay, remember what I said in the beginning. These next several sections in his teaching are primarily designed to show the people that keeping the law is not a feasible way to God. Not the way to heaven, not the way to avoid hell. We just can't pull it off. And that becomes clear when Jesus uncovers the spirit of the law. But again, this also informs us about how we're to live in light of his life-changing presence after he saves us. And so here, and in many other places, it's clear that God expects his children to get along with each other. Just to get along? Well, I mean, look, right here, Jesus basically says, sets the bar at not hating each other. So yeah, at the least, to get along. At the least, Jesus is saying to believers, if you're filled with angry hatred towards your Christian brother or sister, you're not right with God. You're not right with God. I want to say a little bit more about the kind of anger Jesus is talking about because the Bible also indicates in other places that anger is not, anger is not always sin. There's such a thing as righteous anger, like what Jesus demonstrated when he you know, turned over the tables and drove out the merchants from the temple. An in-depth study of anger in the Bible would show us that what we do with the emotion of anger is usually where sin is born. We can't always decide whether or not to feel a certain emotion, but we can decide not to feed it or be controlled by it. And that is what Jesus is talking about. The word translated into our word anger here is the Greek word orge. It is a brooding, inward kind of anger. This is a bitter and hateful anger. This orge actually carries with it the idea of planning violence of some kind, whether emotional or physical. You find yourself wishing harm upon another person. This is anger that wants to become a weapon. By contrast, there's another Greek word for anger which is used other places in Scripture, which is the word thymos. And it's a momentary kind of anger. Thymos is what we might call a flash of anger, while orge anger is nursed and fueled and layered until it becomes an intent to harm. Thymos is more of a passing emotion. Our text today is about orge anger, which, as one commentary put it, is the basic evil behind preconceived murder. Orge is the kind of emotion that could eventually lead to an intentional act of violence toward another person. 
So Jesus wasn't talking about the emotion I might momentarily feel when a person is critical or negative or, or just says something that stings. Jesus was not referring to the anger I feel when an umpire makes a bad call that costs my team the game. Jesus probably wasn't talking about the emotion you feel when someone insults your hairstyle. That is, unless you allow it to fester and you nurse it until you desire to see that person, you know, get a really bad haircut or something. Essentially, Jesus was talking about anger with violent intent. Anger that wishes there could be payback. Anger wanting revenge. That's the kind of anger Jesus was talking about here. The Bible says a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. An angry man stirs up dissension, and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. Jesus is talking about this kind of anger. And yet, before you write off your anger is not so bad, understand that there are many ways to harm other people. If you're not a killer, you can always kill their character, right? This kind of anger leads to slander, name-calling, tearing other people down, creating mistrust, maybe just putting a question mark in someone's mind uh, that maybe that person that you're angry with isn't, it isn't quite who they appeared to be. This is the kind of anger that Jesus says is deserving of punishment to varying degrees depending on the action attached to it. Jesus said this kind of anger directed against a brother or sister in Christ and allowed to develop to the point of harming another person, say, with name calling or character assassination, is anger worthy of hell. In other words, it's sin. How is it that we learn to ignore such verses? How do we let ourselves forget what Jesus said about something so serious? Orge anger, which might also be called hate, leads to division and fighting and the opposite of everything that God wants for his family on this earth. We're talking about how to have heaven on earth in this series, if you'll remember. And I do think that's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, bringing the heavenly kingdom down to earth. One sure way not to bring heaven to earth is to allow this kind of anger and hatred in our hearts. Unfortunately, most people who have spent much of their lives within any particular church have seen this kind of hateful anger firsthand. Churches split. Pastors who've given until it hurts are ultimately fired by the people to whom they gave. Families are ostracized. Leaders step down. Words are used as weapons. Hatred begins to reign. Jesus warned us of dire consequences when we allow the sin of hatred to rage among brothers and sisters in Christ. And he used the strongest language possible to tell us to avoid it at all costs. I'm going to try a diagram just to kind of map this out. I'm calling it you may have trouble seeing this, but you'll get the idea. A cycle, a cycle of division. And this is the cycle we don't ever want to let start or further. So it starts with, we'll say, a harmful act. A harmful act. Whatever it is that makes you angry. And in, re in reaction to that, kind of this kind of follows the text today. Uh, so this leads. Yeah, I'm going to turn it and then I'll turn it back to anger. This is not going to make a good circle, by the way. I'm not, I need my wife up here if I'm going to do that. 
And then that anger or hatred leads to, based on the text, character, judgment. We're not just angry, we're making a judgment about the person who made us angry. <clears throat> Looking back to our text, you can see that cycle described, and that's the beginning of it. Jesus said it all starts when you get angry with a brother. The kind of anger that would retaliate, and that leads to name-calling, which is basically a negative judgment about that person's character. You good for nothing. In the original language, the word there in verse 22 is rakah, which means worthless. You're worthless. And at that time, this word was also associated with the idea of, of spitting on a person, which also meant to treat them as an enemy of God and his people. If we let it continue, we get over here to character. It wasn't enough to judge. Now, are there two S's both times? Assassination. I'm so used to spell check now. And of course, this just keeps going, right? It leads right back up to, now you're doing the harmful act. But this, this uh, character assassination, this point in the text means more than first meets our eyes. In the original language, it's where it says, you, you fool. You fool at this point. But that insult was not so much a statement in their language about the person's intellect or even about their behavior being foolish, but worse. It was to say that this person lives as if there is no God. That's what the original word meant. So in the church today, just as it was then, this is basically the worst thing you could possibly say to another believer. This word translated as, you fool, is as if to say to someone who claims to be a Christian, nah, you do not really know Jesus. You are not one of us. Or even, I don't think I'll be seeing you in heaven. Literally, this is like saying to another believer, you cannot possibly be saved. This is what they meant by the word fool. Maybe you can't imagine this ever happening. Surely nobody could be that judgmental, that arrogant, that harsh. I hate to burst your bubble, but I have been the recipient of this very insult. In one case, very directly, and in another case or two, by insinuation. Yes, angry people have questioned my salvation on more than one occasion. Why? Because this is the worst the most hurtful thing that anyone could possibly say to another believer. It's exactly what someone will say when no other words seem to be strong enough to voice the hatred one believer has in his heart for another. My friends, the cycle of division is an out-of-control cycle. It always goes beyond what we thought was possible. And we find ourselves saying, how could it have come to this? What can men do against such reckless hate? The cycle of division leads to ugliness like you've never imagined. A raging fire that just 
spins on itself, hateful destruction, as if people whom you thought you knew suddenly became the embodiment of evil. Or worse, it is you who's lost your way. And it's you who is filled with hate. What is Jesus trying to do here? He is trying to stop this cycle before it starts by showing us where it leads. But will we listen to his warning or forget all about it when the difficult time or the disappointment or the harmful act or the insult or whatever comes when it occurs? Will we forget and go ahead and just walk right through it like sheep? Notice also the metaphorical consequences that Jesus throws into his illustration in order to show us the seriousness of this kind of activity within his family, within his church. First, we see anger leading to the judgment of a lower court. Just the anger part is, is, is handled in a lower court. And keep in mind, this judgment's being made upon the one who's filled with hatred, hateful anger, not the one who committed the harmful act. Do you see that? It's not the, the one that committed the harmful act or made the insult that's being judged. It's, it's, it's us in our anger in Jesus' teaching here. There's nothing here about whether your hatred was justified, only that it will be judged. And so Jesus starts with a lower court where hopefully you might be mildly disciplined in order to motivate it enough to put an end to your hatred before it goes on around. The idea of different courts was familiar to the audience of Jesus that day. They were local Jewish courts where they would adjudicate you know, minor issues like our small claims courts today. But next we see character judgment leading to the Supreme Court. That's where it's set to the next level. I mean, we're, we're judging the person's character. We're, 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 we're dissing it back on them. And now it's the Supreme Court. There's a reverence to the Jewish high council. It's what Jesus would have meant. Also known as the Sanhedrin, where even death sentences could be de decreed. But then ultimately, if the cycle of division continued to the point of character assassination, this thing of you fool, this thing of you aren't even one of us, you don't know God, the instigator would receive judgment from heaven's court or God's court and a guilty verdict equals according to Jesus hell not a good cycle it's not hard to see why we don't want this right we don't want this it's not hard to see why Paul said to the church in Ephesus, be diligent, make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Folks, getting along in the church is serious business. In fact, getting along in the church is pretty much do or die. Nothing's more important. All right, let's look on in verse 23. Where Jesus says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. I've said many times that horizontal peace can only flow from vertical peace. Don't expect to have peace with people if you don't have peace with God. True peace can only flow from heaven because God is the source of peace. 
We can only get along with each other when we're getting along with God. But that's only half the story. Because when vertical peace, for some reason, does not lead to horizontal peace, then we immediately lose that vertical peace as well. We could draw a circle on this one, too. We see this principle throughout Scripture, nowhere more than right here in verse 23. Jesus says, don't try to come to God with your worship or your prayer or your ministry when you know that you are at odds with someone else in God's family. Jesus says, do your best to make peace with that brother or sister before you try to continue your relationship with God. It's not hard to understand. The next thing Jesus says to his hillside learners is this, verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you'll not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Friends, I think this may be the first New Testament sermon illustration. Jesus uses a common situation to illustrate his point and of course he's used as a perfect illustration. Debtor's prison was a very common thing for those who were listening to Jesus that day. Going there was likely a great fear that many of them lived with. They carried with them since many, many of them would wind up going there based on not being able to pay their taxes. It's the reason tax collectors were thought of as just so horrible in that society. If they couldn't pay their taxes, they went to prison, debtor's prison, and their taxes were oppressive. And so Jesus used something they were rightfully afraid of You don't want this. You have friends that have gone through this. You don't want this in your life. So he uses that to make three points. One, that it's always better to settle divisive issues sooner rather than later. Like on the way. Just get it done. Get it settled. Number two, that it's better to involve as few people as possible in a dispute. So important. And three, to never enter a conflict without a clear understanding of the stakes. Jesus was saying that his disciples should be as diligent to resolve their conflicts with each other as they were to diligent to stay out of a Roman dungeon. I'm curious, how many of you have experienced the misfortune of watching the cycle of division develop? You just saw it develop in a church. Anybody? Yeah. Not cool gets so ugly I've also seen in other places I've seen in broken marriages a lot among groups of employees small businesses between friends neighborhoods volunteer organizations and as we said it happens in churches the more time that goes by without reconciliation between the major players the more times it goes around the circle the harder it gets the bigger the whole thing gets the more trash is spoken the more emotional ammo is stockpiled more misunderstandings miscommunications slander ugliness and eventually even those who were innocent at first are now guilty because they haven't been able to keep themselves free of the filth being flung around and typically things escalate until nobody even remembers what started the whole thing worse nobody knows how to stop it at some point we give up on unity even in the church at which point our witness is basically destroyed as we prove to be no different than any other group of people who do not know the Lord so Jesus is saying don't let it start He's saying, be afraid of that inescapable prison where you'll stay until your full debt is paid off. Be afraid of the potential end results of not settling things quickly. Be afraid of bringing others into the conflict. Be afraid of the consequences. 
Don't go to the next step. Bend over backwards to sign some way to settle the disagreement before it escalates to the point of lifelong disastrous consequences. And so the main idea here is we really don't want to even start down this path. The further we get along, the harder it is to stop it. As Paul put it in his letter to the Colossians, you must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Why can't we all just get along? Well, call me an idealist, but I believe in the church, at least, we can. We can. We can get along. Do you believe that? It's kind of hard, isn't it? We can. We can learn to love each other in a way that makes the world stand up and take notice. This requires work and maturity, and usually the more mature person will need to eat humble pie. But it's possible to get along, especially when we remember the consequences of failure. I want to close with a story. I had no idea the special challenges of church planting or else I would have never planted my first church back in Missouri. I think I've blocked portions of those 12 years as a first-time church planter from my memory. I know I have. This time has been considerably easier so far. <laughs> but as I thought about this message, I was remembering some of the extreme situations I found myself in in my first church plant where I struggled with anger that bordered on hatred and was forced to somehow find the grace to forgive and move forward time and time again. So here's one story. During a particularly down time, but did you know pastors can get down and things can get hard and you know maybe you're not your best? Things were not going well, the church was not growing. I was struggling with burnout, faced an attack that I've tried to forget. I don't nurse and rehearse it, but for the purposes of this message, I will share it. We had lost our youth pastor to a bigger church, and so I got to tell you, there was a church in town. It was called Morning Star Church, and people, it was like thousands, and people kept, we'd see people saved and baptized in our church, and they were growing and stuff, and then they would go there. They called it Morning Star Church. I called it Black Hole Church. <laughs> they were just sucking our people. And so they took our youth pastors. a great church. I'm just teasing. It was a good church. But our, we lost our youth pastor. And uh, so I wound up doing that. I was doing everything. I was doing the music. I did the music and the preaching for 10 years in that, in that church plant. And so I was, uh, I was wearing out. Um, three ministerial hats, taking a toll. I was just about desperate. Just then, I noticed a newcomer who was young and likable to the youth. He was dating somebody who had helped out in the youth department, so I began to mentor him a little bit, thought that maybe they could lead it uh, together. Uh, meanwhile, I confided in this young man about some things, such as the fact that I was feeling burnout. And I showed him a little weakness, basically showed a little bit of vulnerability. Way too quickly, barely knowing him, I put him in charge of the youth ministry. He seemed to do pretty well. A few months later, he came back from youth camp claiming to have heard from God. The message? 
God wanted him to go to our leadership team and suggest I step down. And so he composed a short treatise on the fact that I did not meet the qualifications for an elder. First time that's ever happened. Uh, according to him, accused me of greed, uh, among other things, I guess because he thought we weren't paying him enough, even though that wasn't my decision, and he agreed on the salary before he took the position. There was nothing in his list of accusations that I'd actually done, just character judgments, more or less attacks on my personality. Did you know not everybody likes me? <laughs> Our leadership team wanted to fire him. They didn't put any stock into it. He went ahead and stepped down first trying to protect his reputation. I called a meeting with all the youth and the parents. Keep in mind, most of them barely even knew him yet. He was still very new. Conversely, I had baptized most of them and their children. But I called them together at my house because we're still a mobile church at the time, and so that's where we met. And I talked about Paul and Barnabas. I talked about just, us just needing to go our separate ways over some disagreements. Didn't throw them under the bus. Didn't want to tear them down. So what he did then was to contact all of them and tell them that I was a liar. And I had not told them the true story that, in fact, he had been fired. Not true. He had offered to step down and we had received his resignation. But after trying to protect him by not disclosing that he would have been fired had he not stepped down, he said I was a liar. Not a fun thing to be called. By the way, everything's worse when you're a pastor, right? Because you're supposed to be perfect. Well, we're not. Next evening... This young man showed up at my house in a rage. My wife and kids were inside, could hear every word of what happened next. I stepped out on the front porch where he showed me the meaning of verbal abuse. Most of you have never experienced verbal abuse. If you have, you know it. And to be clear, this is not the same thing as being chewed out. There's more to verbal abuse than that. It's only happened to me maybe twice in my life. Maybe three times. He stood there an inch or two from my face with spit flying as he just screamed the most hurtful things, character assassination things that you can possibly imagine. Questioned my salvation, among other things. He's just screaming, whatever the devil put in his mind. But I did not flinch. God gave me a calm. I'll just never forget it. I just stood there. I was ready to take a punch. I thought it was coming. And I just decided I was just going to take it. But after he was done screaming and I was finished silently staring straight into his eyes as I prayed, he just got in his car and left. About a year later, he wrote me an email apologizing, saying I did not deserve what he did. For the second time, I told him I forgave him. He strangely offered to go get coffee. I thought, oh, well, all right, maybe... Maybe we can experience some more healing in this. So I accepted his response. Are you serious? You'd actually go get coffee? I guess he was mad that I could forgive to that level because I never heard from him again after that. As a pastor, I've endured several encounters of this nature. How do I deal with things like this? How do I make sure it doesn't turn to hate? Only by the power of the word and his spirit. See, I really believe this thing called the Bible. And I really believe the Spirit of God can change your heart as you apply it and what it says. I really believe what Jesus said about anger and hatred. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. I refuse to allow anger, hate, hateful anger to fester. 
in my heart. I wrestle it to the ground every time. Sometimes this takes several days or even a week or two. But I don't stop until all the hateful anger is dead. That doesn't mean I don't have scars. It doesn't mean I don't get weary. But at least so far, I do not believe I have allowed these open wounds to last very long. The stakes are simply too high. I hope that after today, some of you will get right before God in this area. Before it's too late. I hope you'll either truly let something go or go to the person who has offended you in the right way. I hope you'll deal with your hateful anger before it consumes you. Jesus has spoken. If nothing I said in my message mattered today, just read the text. Jesus has spoken. What will you do? Let's pray. Father, this is so real and so raw for many of us. I know in this room, even as I've written this message, I've had to do business with you and make sure that I could truly say that it's, it's dealt with. And so if someone else today, they're hearing this for the first time in a while, maybe you're speaking to their heart. God, help us to be doers of your word, not just hearers. I pray that even in this moment, someone make a commitment to you to get this right, to realize how serious it is to let it go and to take whatever action is necessary in order to, let it, to, to get beyond this and to move past this and not to allow the cycle to continue. God, protect our church. Thank you so much that so far so good. Thank you for our unity. Thank you for our love. I'm also not naive about the fact that we're only two and a half years old and it gets harder. So I ask for your protection. Help us grow, help us be mature as individuals and as people. Lord, as we even learn how to be your disciples, God, as we understand these two things today, that we can't be good enough to get to heaven, that obeying your law is never going to work to get, get to heaven, that we need to have our faith in you. And this other side of it, that once we have our faith in you and once we know you, that there's a life to be lived that's different to follow Jesus. Those two things, God, that you might use that in someone's heart right now to say, I want, I want to be part of that. Lord, it's a decision. It's not a decision we can make without your spirit drawing us, but it's a decision. It's a choice. As Joshua said, choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Each one of us has to come to a point of surrender, of putting our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. So maybe there's somebody that wants to do that in this moment, even right now. Just to say yes today, today to you. Yes, I want to follow Christ. I want to serve him. I, I, don't, I don't want to have any doubt. I just, want to, I just want to decide today. I just want to throw it in. Throw it all in. I'm going to put all my chips on you. That, that you're going to save me. That you're going to take care of me. That, uh, that I'll get to be in heaven with you because of Jesus and what he did. Not because of anything I can do. Lord, thank you that that's not the end, that as we're saved, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning, our first step of following you, and that you have given us so much instruction in your word about how we can be more like you and bring your kingdom to this place and make it a better place, even as we wait for your return. God, help us to follow you in real ways, in real ways that are different than everybody else. We keep working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.